It's a pleasure to fellowship with you guys today. We'll be in Acts chapter, the last verse of chapter 12 and on. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. It's really unique how the Bible, it's such an ancient book, but it's still so personally relevant in the present. I don't, I don't think there's anything that's even remotely similar to the way that God's Word impacts our lives. For some, the Bible is just a collection of myths or legends, outdated laws or practices, a mix of ancient history or philosophy. But for others, it's the God-breathed Word of truth. It's something to base your life upon. That doesn't just talk about how to conduct ourselves here, now, but to know the future and to know the God who formed the heavens, the one who's called us by name. And we hold in our hands the unchanging revelation of the Almighty God. And it's possible to believe that we have that. Like, yes, this is God's word. This is the authority. This is the truth. We believe it and we can repeat it and we can value it, but it doesn't mean that we're practicing it. We can fall short of obedience to it. So you can possess it in a leather-bound form, but are you bound to honor and to obey it? That's the question. It has to be more than revered, but actually practiced, put into practice in our lives. And in my life, there's an example. When I was 18, I got a box of Slazenger golf balls. Um, and when I first started playing golf at 17, I was working at Macca's. Needless to say, I wasn't making much money. I think it was 4.25 an hour for you younger people out there. You're like, what? I don't even show up to work for less than 15, right? No, no, $4.25. And some of you can do a lot better than that, I bet. Um, when, I, when I was playing golf, though, it was the junior rate. It was like $5 for a year to join this club. And the, the clubs that you had, they were free. So I never bought golf balls. The, the first tee box was right next to the driving range. It was always a variety of range balls that had gone over the net. And so those were the balls that I used. I just used range balls and the free clubs and... So I, when I got this 12-pack of balls and these nice, shiny sleeves, I was like, oh. I would never buy these for myself, and I couldn't bring myself to use them. I would, I would use them on the carpet, you know, take three, all the same number, out of the sleeve and putt with them, and then I'd put them back in their cases and store it away. And when I got rid of those clubs, when I did, finally did get clubs, I never once used those balls. Never once. I valued them but I didn't put them into play. And because I didn't put them into play, I missed out. Because if you've played golf, you know the ball that you use makes a huge difference. A range ball is going to perform totally different than a new ball. We can do that with the Bible. We can value it. We can treasure it. We can um, order our lives around it in theory. But do we value it enough to trust God and put it into practice? To say, this is what God wants me to do based upon his word. God's word is so much more important than the ball you choose. And as we're led by the Holy Spirit, he gives us understanding of what his words mean, how to apply it personally to our lives. And the passage we're reading today, it is a, it is a passage God's used in my own testimony, something uh, God used to direct my life. But I'm also, in thinking of that, it's very easy for us to take a passage of Scripture and relegate its application to a note that you've put in your margins, maybe a sermon that you've heard one time, and we're not making it rel um, 
meaningful in the present, what God's telling you today through his passage, because it's the living word of God. It's active. It pierces our hearts. It, it challenges us, and it, it moves us to change and to acknowledging that, man, God's ways are so much higher than mine. This is not what I would have thought to do, but God's wise, and he's good. So God's word never changes, but he wants you to be changed. He wants me to be changed by it. We're going to read about Barnabas, Saul, and these disciples we've been reading about in the book of Acts, how they were led by the Spirit. They were guided by him. God worked in them, and he also worked through them. And that's true for us today. As we seek the Lord, the Bible says, with our whole hearts, we will find him. And the Spirit still will guide us into ministry and perhaps locations that we never dreamed of. I'm perfectly honest in saying I never once in my youth even dreamed of pastoral ministry. I never thought about immigrating to Australia. Um, I never thought about teaching the Bible. Those are things that never entered into my mind, but the Lord led me um, in that direction, and he confirmed that call upon my life through his word, and he brought it to fruition, not because I am good, but because he's good. He's the worthy one. He's the one who has a plan, and he leads us to follow it. So may the Lord uh, encourage you in that. So Acts 12, starting in verse 25, says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. At the end of Acts 11, Agabus, a prophet, he had said that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, and the believers in Antioch all decided, based upon that prophecy, we're going to set aside a financial contribution to bless the church there to help them out. So before the, the famine even happened, these Gentile believers were gathering resources to bless and strengthen the church in Jerusalem. And they determined to send relief as they did through the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And it says, when their ministry was fulfilled, the delivery of these, this relief, they returned to Antioch. And when they returned, they brought with them John Mark. Uh, he was a cousin to Barnabas. That's what Colossians 4.10, it identifies him as the son of his sister. So that's the relation of John Mark to Barnabas. And he's also believed by many to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. It must have been tempting for Paul, having such deep roots in Jerusalem, to remain in Jerusalem. But when their ministry was fulfilled, when it was completed, they returned to Antioch. Now, I had read this verse many times before the Lord hit me with fresh relevance at the time, in 2009, I was working as a youth pastor at a church. God had confirmed to me and, and ultimately Laura that the Lord had called us to serve him on the east side of Australia somewhere, somehow. We just had a very vague idea, but the call was clear, and I felt like I was all dressed up but nowhere to go. So there's many years that this sense or knowledge was there, but there were no open doors. I had no connections whatsoever in Australia. I had a family, two young children, a lot of responsibility at church, but there was this consciousness of a call that God had made that couldn't be denied. It was obvious to me. And when I was, I had visited for 10 days and I went back to the States and I came across this verse in particular. And it just struck me, has my ministry been fulfilled where God has me in San Diego? And it hadn't occurred to me that it could have been fulfilled. I mean, it's one thing to know that you finished washing the car or you finished 
washing the dishes or painting the wall. Those things are pretty obvious. Like I finished vacuuming because I vacuumed everywhere. But how can you tell when you've finished or fulfilled a ministry God's called you to when there's still needs all around and it's being fruitful? How do you know when, when it's actually been fulfilled? So this was a burning question in my mind. And the Lord didn't wait long before he, he answered my prayer and just said, you know, you, if you've been listening to your wife, she's been telling you for six months that this ministry has been fulfilled. Listen to your wife. It's a good thing to do. I don't know about you, but it's a hard thing for me and for us to learn when it's time to, to recognize God has fulfilled your involvement in a ministry. There's a time for an athlete to retire from the sport they love, you know, to hang up the boots. In ministry, it's transitory, it's transient, it's, it's temporary. It may be harder to stop than to start. But once I understood my ministry was fulfilled, then I was able to see the Lord just opened my eyes like, hey, look, I have put people in strategic places so that there won't be a lack. There won't be a hole. I'm going to supply my people's needs. And then it wasn't about me at all, which is amazing because like, you know, God can take care of his people. He saves us. He nurtures us. He leads us and he fulfills the ministry. So now back to Acts 13, verse 1. Now in that church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. God had assembled a very diverse team in Antioch, composed of prophets and teachers from all over. Barnabas was from Cyrus, Simeon likely from Africa. Niger means black, so it's likely that he was had dark skin. Um, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was raised with Herod, and Herod was the one, Herod Antipas, he was the one who beheaded John the Baptist and mocked Jesus when Jesus was brought before him. So you have two guys brought up together, one of them rejecting and scorning Christ, the other one following him faithfully. And Saul, who was once a Pharisee from Tarsus, who used to persecute people of the way. So he had been this opponent of the church, and now he is serving Jesus Christ faithfully. They were faithful stewards of the ministry God had given them. Verse 2, it says they ministered to the Lord and fasted. It's really important that their focus of ministry was to the Lord. It wasn't just out of love for the people that they were with. God was central to their service. They ministered to God, and they did so by blessing the people, and uh, they fasted, it says. When Jesus was asked why his disciples did not fast, he said, it'd be like going to a wedding and not eating all the food that's been prepared. A day will come when the bridegroom's taken away, and they will fast in those days. And those are the days in which we live. Those are the days in which they were living, where Jesus had gone from them, and they denied the necessity of food. So food is something we need, right? But the Bible also says that we don't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there's something in the spiritual discipline of fasting to to put aside voluntarily the eating of food to seek the Lord and to hear from him. Like, Lord, I need to hear from you more than I need to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
That's the most important thing to me today. So to have that heart in fasting and coming aside from your normal routine and spending more time in seeking the Lord, it's really important. And as they sought the Lord and fasted, God spoke to them. The Holy Spirit said, so again, he is a person. The Holy Spirit said, likely not through an audible voice, but through one of those believers who was praying to separate Barnabas and Saul for the work to which he had called them. I imagine Barnabas and Saul were quite content to remain in Antioch, right? That's where they were. They had been there for a year. They, they were, there was nothing that would lead them away. A fruitful ministry, it had been great. They have all these gifted teachers and prophets with them. But God had called them to minister at a place that he had decided and to do a work he had called them to. They didn't know right here. It doesn't say where. It doesn't say what. It doesn't say when. He said, separate these men for the work I've called them to do. It's encouraging to me that Barnabas and Saul were not sent by the church. It wasn't, um, you know, Peter sending a message like, hey, guys, we need to go over to Cyprus. We've got to get into Asia. We've got to, you know, spread the word. It didn't come down that way. It was the Holy Spirit who who ordained them. It was the Holy Spirit who sent them. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God who had this plan and a work that they were going to do. And when God has a work for you to do, you can do it through him. He'll enable you to. And uh, they left with the blessing of the church, which I think is very important as well. It said they prayed, they fasted, they laid hands on them and just said, we agree with what the Spirit has said. And they went with the blessing of the fellowship. I like what Guzik wrote in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, if we assume they fasted and prayed about the need of the world for Jesus, we can see how God answered their prayer by using them. This is often how God moves, by sending the people who have it on their heart to pray. Many want to be backseat drivers in God's work. They hope to say, I'll have the burden and you do the work. But God's typical way of working is to send the people who have the burden to do the work. And that reminds me a lot about Gladys Aylward, who I'll talk about later. But she had this heart as a new believer for the people of China. And she tried to get everybody that she knew, who she thought was qualified, you know, um, you've got to go to China. They need to hear about the gospel. And God had not called anyone to that, except he had called her to that. And there was a, a period of time where she wrestled with this. But she recognized, well, if the burden's on my heart to do something, well, then Maybe God would have me be part of that. And I want to encourage you that should God put a burden on your heart for someone or to do something, consider that he might have called you to be part of that, for you to be working toward that end. Because it's interesting the different groups of people we can come in contact with where someone might be very much like, I have a heart for these kids in foster care. But you don't know anyone in foster care. But God's put this on your heart. So seek him about that, how he would have you minister, how he would have, how he would use you to that end, not just to try to get anyone else to do it. Being content right where you are is very important to discern if you're responding to the call of God or being moved by the flesh. If I am really struggling in my current circumstances and I really hate my job, well, I might jump at the chance of another job, right? But if I love my job, if I am feeling content in my job and satisfied with what I'm able to provide, then when I have this sense of, 
I should go to a different job. Like, well, why would I think that? Less money, more time, harder work, work that I'm not interested in, but this, this has a draw in some way. Seek the Lord about that. But when you're not content where you are, well, it could be the flesh just trying to escape something. I remember fasting many days um, before God confirmed it was to put in my resignation from the church uh, with no visa, no connections, didn't know where I was going, um, no financial support, no role. There was nothing, but it was time. My ministry had been fulfilled. That's what I knew. And so the Lord just helped me to make that choice. As a believer, do you acknowledge that God's called you to do great work? He's called you to a great work. What's your concept of a great work or a work for God? And I'm not talking about foreign missions or immigration or a pulpit ministry or uh, a, a radio broadcast that's ministering to millions. I'm Put out of your mind the idea of being respected or renowned or quotable or the next great evangelist or the one who writes the next awesome worship song that's top of the charts. Just all that, just put that away. What has God called you to right now? God's already called you out of darkness and into his light. He's called some of you to be parents, some of you to be children, obedient to the authority he has in your life, some of you spouses, some singles, some students. God's called you for be, to be a faithful witness, hasn't he? Whether you're at school or at home or on the job. He's called us to repentance, to prayer. Do, do you see prayer as a work for God, a great work? Repentance as a great work. You don't often think of repentance as a great work, but it is a work that God's called us to. Sacrificial love, loving other people, praying for enemies, ministering to him. That's what God's called you to do. I believe what some would call the little things are actually the biggest things. Because the Bible says that he who is faithful over little will be faithful over much. We say the little things don't matter, but if the big opportunity came, I would rise to the occasion. And the Bible says you're wrong. You will not. You must be, if you are faithful in what is least, you will be faithful in most. We kid ourselves. I think one of the biggest steps Laura and I took 10 years before Australia was staying at a church when we felt like leaving. That was a great work because a lot of people were leaving. We want, we felt like leaving, leaving, but God was not, it was not God who was wanting us to leave. We just felt that way. But you know, being faithful to stay, being faithful to just do that little thing, that was a big step, huge step. And then God's the one who sends. It's nothing for him to send you to the other side of the globe to do something. That's nothing for our God. Nothing is hard for him. And he does great wonders in those who are willing to trust him by his grace. I mean, it's him who works in us both to will and do of his good pleasure. I can't even, we, we can't even uh, prop ourselves up like, well, at least I wanted to. It's like, well, God gave you that desire. I had the faith. Really? No, God gave you that faith. Everything we are and everything we can do 
We cannot take credit for it. We must say, it's the Lord. The Lord has done it. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Acts 13, verse 5. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. They go to Seleucia, then to Cyprus. Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. And it's interesting, they brought John Mark with them, though he hadn't been singled out by the Spirit. It's like, hmm, okay, I'll just tuck that away. I don't have any judgment about it. But uh, I wonder if he should have come. We see that he left shortly after going. As Jesus prophesied, we see the fulfillment. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 13, there's this shift where it's been focused primarily on Jewish audiences. Now it's largely Paul, Saul who is Paul, to the Gentile audiences. If you could bring up that slide, please. I've got a couple of pictures just to show you where they went. So you see Antioch there in the right. They went to Salamis there in Cyprus, and then they traveled to Paphos. And if you could go to the next slide, there's a little bit more detail of the cities they went through. So there it is. if maps are your thing. I know maps are not everyone's thing. You're like, I could care less where it happened. It's cool that it lines up with the world. Good. That's something that's unique about the Bible. It's true to history. It's true to geography. Thanks for that. Now, if there was a place um, that was known for sex tourism in the ancient days, it's this place, Paphos, where they go. That's where the temple of Aphrodite was, or Venus. Uh, The worship of the goddess of love and fertility was centered there. It's believed that that's where she was birthed by Zeus and walked ashore. And so they had all this prostitution going on. And um, from a historical site, it says the cult of Aphrodite was officially established in Cyprus in 1500 BC. Ritual prostitution seems to have been a significant part of the cult at Pelea Paphos. It was said that every young maiden before marriage went once in her lifetime to the sanctuary to make love with a stranger. The man chose his maiden, threw some money at her feet. The sum was unimportant and pronounced the formula, I invoke the goddess upon you. So before you were married, that was a rite of passage. You would go to this place and you would sleep with a stranger. And uh, I'm just like, how horrible is that? That is so demonic, awful. The so-called sexual revolution of our generation And this throwing off of restraint is not progress, but really a return to the ancient filth of pagan debauchery. So at Paphos, they meet this man, Sergius Paulus, and he has this, so he's the proconsul, and he has this, I don't even know what his role was, but he was basically an encumbrance named Bar-Jesus, who was a Jew, sorcerer, and false prophet. And the the Roman uh, government had this man in high esteem, Sergius Paulus. He was over the entire region, and he answered to the Roman Senate, so it was an influential and important role. What Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 16.9, it would ring true here when he said, For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. 
God had opened up this open door for ministry, but Satan opposed the work of God. He opposed the spread of the gospel. This name, Bar-Jesus, it means son of Jesus. But he was quite the opposite, wasn't he? Resistance to God's leading can be from the enemy or even those who mean well. I think of Isabel Kuhn. She was a missionary God used out of Canada. God used her really mightily in, in China, in Thailand. And she told her believing mother that she believed God had called her to a foreign field. And her mother wailed and threw herself at her feet and said, if you go to China, it will be over my dead body. Like, I do not support you. I cannot bear the thought of my daughter living on charity. That's just so shameful. She hated the idea of it. But God used her. God used Isabel. Gladys Aylward of Great Britain, who I mentioned before, she was convinced God had called her to China. She went to a mission director, and he said, you're too old, and you're not smart enough to learn Chinese at 26 years old. You can't do it. And, okay, it makes sense that the director would be circumspect in who he would put in the field. But he said, you're not the person for the job. So she worked for a year. She connected with some Scottish um, older lady who was in China, and she put all of her belongings in a bag and went there on her own, by herself. And the Lord did a great thing through her life. I don't know how many children she saved. She adopted over 80 during that first trip. I had a similar experience when I went to a mission sending group in Southern California. I was really excited that I believe God had called me to the east side of Australia. They were not very impressed. They saw a perceived lack of initiative from the leadership of the church, and they go, you know, we get a lot of people like you. They're pretty sure God's called them to ministry, um, but before long, they're just sitting in that chair crying. You know, you won't make it. Um, and they said, well, we got a training program in Mexico. You need to raise so much funds before we'll let you go. Um, you know, we won't even consider you because your wife hasn't come along to this meeting. Who, Laura had pneumonia at the time. I, I drove home pretty discouraged that day. I'd taken the day off work, and i go up there, and I'm like, all right, you know, this is a first step of many steps. And, and it was like, no. But, you know, I was resolved. I was resolute that God had brought me this far. It was kind of like David with Saul's armor. He's like, God's delivered me from a bear and from a lion. Who is this Philistine to oppose the armies of the living God? Saul, when he brought David before him, he's like, all right, after he talked to him, fine. No one else is going to fight him. It's been 40 days already. Okay, David, you can fight him, but wear my armor. Try it on for size. David's like, you know, I've never tested this. I've never worn it. I've never needed it before. Why should I need it now? And so he, he fought the giant without the armor. This obstacle was a good thing. I praise the Lord for it because it caused me to check myself again and just say, am I hearing from the Lord or am I just crazy? Am I just thinking I want to do something and it's not in God's will? But that very week, God connected me with another group who were totally excited about this call to Australia. And they were just, it was like night and day. It was the group that I'm still with to this day. So God, he, he actually introduced me to Gladys and Isabel during my years of, of moving towards Australia. And I, 
I, I encourage you to find brothers and sisters who have followed the Lord and, and see how they persevered. We see Paul and, and Barnabas and Silas and many others, Peter, who had great challenges. And I'm not worthy to be compared with any of them. Um, but through their lives, we can get a lot of encouragement to continue. And of course, we look to Jesus, who suffered for us, who's called us. He's the one who ordains us. Verse 8, But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Luke changes his name. He's tired of calling him Bar-Jesus, and he says, Elymas, that's the Greek translation. His name is so called. Sergius Paulus, he says, hey, Barnabas, Saul, I've heard about this Christ. I want to hear the word of God. But Elymas withstood them, and Paul rebuked him with some pretty strong words there. Uh, filled with the Spirit, it says. Paul, interestingly, is Paulus in Greek. So Sergius Paulus and Paul, they actually have the same name. And some have said, well, maybe that's why they call him Paul, is because of Sergius Paulus. I don't know. But uh, it means little. You see this, this shift. This is the first time that Paul is called Paul. So Saul to Paul, where he, it's a, it's a beautiful transition. And he looks at him and says, you full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? The Holy Spirit gave Paul spiritual discernment to see the sinister nature of this resistance. It was coming from the devil. It was not, not of God. Not only did he refuse the truth of the gospel, but he sought to deter others from following Christ. And those who withstand God often follow this pattern. It's not enough for them to refuse the gospel, but they also seek to turn others away, to hinder others from following. It's well, it describes well how Satan operates, really. He knows the truth, but he distorts it. He intentionally mishandles it to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. And then Paul says, Indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. Remember when Saul was traveling the road to Damascus? Jesus met him on the road and blinded him. Now Paul meets an enemy of the gospel, and he pronounces blindness upon him for a season. And it happened in front of many witnesses, most notably in front of Sergius Paulus. And I like Henry, Matthew Henry's observations. It's almost like poetry. He says, he shut his eyes, the eyes of his mind against the light of the gospel, and therefore justly were the eyes of his body shut against the light of the sun. He sought to blind the deputy, and therefore is himself struck blind. Yet it was a moderate punishment. It was only for a season. Let not him any more pretend to be a guide to the deputy's conscience who is himself struck blind. So he's struck blind. He cannot see. And the passage concludes with Elymas looking for someone to lead him by the hand. I don't think people wanted to be close to him when that happened. They're like, whoa, you're cursed, man. I don't want to be anywhere near you. This is a powerful God. 
Paul, it says, was led by the hand into Damascus. But Elymas cannot find anyone to lead him by the hand. We don't read that he finds anyone. And I wonder, did Elymas repent of his hatred of Christ as Saul did? We don't know. Did he repent of his spiritual blindness? And this scene, really, it's a, it's a vivid picture of how the Jews had opposed the gospel and they sought to keep people from entering in the way, Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles would gladly receive it, as we'll see. In the last chapter of Acts, Paul was reasoning with Jews in Rome who wanted to hear of the way and he talked with them for an entire day. From morning until night, he's talking about Christ and the word of God, the scriptures that they would have known. And he's saying, this is pointing to Jesus. And he showed them again and again. And he effectively ended the discussion with a statement in Acts 28, 25 through 28. It says, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke right through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. So that's what's happening here, where you see the Jews' refusal of Christ uh, and they, of course, can be grafted back in through faith in Jesus. But the gospel would go to the Gentiles and they would hear it, of whom many are represented here. Many Gentiles who have received the gospel through Jesus. See, the result of the, these words in Acts thirteen twelve. then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Sergius Paulus saw what had been done. He saw Elymas struck blind. But what astonished him was the teaching of the Lord. Quite often, when Jesus preached, he would heal people. He would cast out demons. The blind would see, the lame would be able to walk, and it would confirm the word that he had spoken to them. So he makes this claim, and to confirm his claim, he does a sign or a miracle. And it shows that this has authority. He is speaking the truth. Think about when Jesus met the woman at the well. He gave a word of knowledge about her marital situation. And it was at that moment where she said, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. She, it was just kind of crossing swords as a Jew and Gentile until he spoke a word of knowledge. He says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Peter, he lifted up a man in the name of Jesus Christ, and because of this miracle, people come running, and he has a chance to address them, and many come to Christ. Philip, he's led by the Holy Spirit to just walk into the desert, and he sees this man, and God says, Overtake that chariot. And he runs up and says, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? Being led by the Spirit, it leads to this man's conversion. The Lord even used the joyful suffering of Paul and Silas as they've been beaten by rods and they're thrown into the prison. They're singing, everyone hears it, and there's this earthquake, the doors swing open, 
the Philippian jailer comes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? As far as I know, they hadn't preached at all to him. But such an example of being filled with the Spirit and the joy of the Lord in the darkest, painful circumstances, it led to people receiving Christ. From this and many other passages, we see the Holy Spirit's um, presence and his activity in the salvation of people. I mean, it's God's work to save a soul, right? A great work. There's no precise pattern we see in the New Testament except that we be filled with the Holy Spirit to effectively do the work God's called us to. Now, I want to challenge you guys. What would you find more astonishing? If someone was to speak and someone else be struck blind or to hear the teaching of the Lord? What might astonish you more? I imagine seeing someone struck blind would be more astonishing. That's what we would be talking about. Did you see that? Was he faking it? No, he was. I don't think he saw. He walked right into a wall. Like he, he couldn't even reach the. We were reaching out to help him, and he's like, ah, you know, he has no idea, and he, he just kept doing it. He didn't stop. It wasn't like a game, right? That's what we would be talking about. But how much more amazing and astonishing? Now I know we're familiar with the gospel, and we're familiar with what the Bible says. But how astonishing is the teaching of the Lord? that he would forgive and give eternal life to those who trust him. In a culture, think about it, a Roman culture saturated with idolatry, rites, rituals, invocations, to speak of the one true God becoming flesh, becoming a man, being the servant of all, choosing to suffer and die for the sins of others, and then rising again in glory. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know the gods are not good. Not one of them. Zeus, he was the father of gods, but he rebelled against his own father, Kronos. Don't know if you know that. I was reminded of that. Uh, You look at Zeus, and he lines up much better with Satan than God. Full stop. He rebelled against his father, Kronos. He killed him. He was easily angered vindictive, unpredictable, self-seeking. He had countless sexual liaisons with whoever he lusted after, even with his sister who was his wife. I mean, this, these are the Greek gods, Dionysus, and, and who is also Bacchus. Uh, they're always bickering, deceiving each other, tricking one another. They're not to be trusted. Do you know of any other being that is all-powerful and yet all-righteous? You know that when, have you ever known anyone who has power, who with the more power they have, they're less corrupt? Mm Mm-mm. Because if you have the power, you don't have to be righteous. You answer to no one. You will answer to God, of course. But the Greek and Roman mythology, it was stripped as the great deceit that it was. There's no hope there. If you were to die, you would go to Hades with everybody else, with the keeper of the underworld in darkness. That's your lot. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy. And here you have this whole different view where God, he is almighty. He's created all things. He is good and he loves people. He does not deceive. He does not lie. He does not trick. And he speaks the truth, and we have it. We can hold it in our hands. And he has come and has become a man. 
and he has chosen to suffer for our sakes who are undeserving and he keeps loving us. He doesn't just throw lightning bolts down from heaven to kill us. No, he, he saves and he delivers and he's good. And he's like, whoa, what a God. Never In all the gods, I've never heard of such a God. Let's not lose the wonder of who God is and all he has done. Verse 13, when Paul and his party departed Paphos, John Mark did not travel on with them. For a reason unknown, he returned to Jerusalem. And as we'll read on in Acts 15, we see Paul lost confidence in him, that he really wasn't fit for the task. Barnabas thought he was. So they had this contention, and we won't get into a, a, a big thing about it here. But at a later time, Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he would ask for John Mark and say, bring him to me because he's profitable for me and the ministry. So we see that people led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, they're not infallible. They can still make mistakes and errors of judgment. We can show favoritism, uh, misinterpret actions and words, uh, be short-sighted and long remember uh, wrongs against us. So these are things to be repented of and to just acknowledge that, yeah, I'm no better today than when I, when I first came to Christ for salvation. I need the Lord and I need his grace. And having received the grace of God, let's be generous with it to give it to others. God chose to separate Barnabas and Saul for the work, and they went, led and empowered by the Spirit, to do it. And I like that when they were called, they weren't told what it would look like, how long it would last, where they would be. They went out with the blessing of the church, and they were fruitful for God. They put into practice the faith they had read about with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, David, Moses, the prophets of old. You've read about the faith of these these men and women in the Old Testament and the New, the apostles. People even like Isabel Kuhn and Gladys Aylward. Are you willing to seek the Lord and answer with an affirmative to whatever or wherever he has you serve him? Doing whatever he wants. Are you willing to say that? Like, before I even know the answer, you guys know that, right? You'll ask the question if you know the answer is going to be what you want to hear. Um, are you willing to just give God that blank check that says, here is my life. You can fill it out however you want, wherever you want, however you want, um, and I'm not going to even weigh in on what I'd really like or prefer. Like, Lord, I'll do anything, but just keep me here. Or, Lord, anywhere but here. <laughs> Send me where it's a lot easier. <laughs> And, you know, we can make this colossal error where we limit God's call upon our life to a role in the church or a place. But Paul, he was an apostle to the Gentiles, right? But did he minister to Jews? Well, certainly. Was it just in in Cyprus? Well, no, he went in Jerusalem as well. So though he was called to go to the Gentiles, wherever he went, he was usable and useful to do the work of God where he called him at that time. So this is, I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's earth-shattering, really. When we're bound by the love of God to be obedient to God and to trust him, wherever you are, whatever he has you doing, you can be useful for him. Not just the big things, 
Please turn to Colossians 3.22 as we close. Just the last verse. Um, the term servants and bond servants in the New Testament, it's really a slave, if you look in the Greek word. And in our culture, we would, we would have a, quite a distinction between a servant or like a butler where you're a hired person who voluntarily works and a slave, someone who is really the property and owned by someone else. But Paul got this. He had, as in the law, decided, I love my master. I don't want to leave him. I want to be joined with him forever. And he became God's bondservant or slave where it was a life of voluntary service, but realizing I'm his possession now. I don't live for myself anymore. And so he begins addressing us as his children and bondservants. Colossians 3.22, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And Paul was talking to a lot of believers who, they were literal slaves. They had become slaves, and it wasn't by their choice. Uh, but he said, if, you're, if you are a slave, don't seek freedom. But if you have freedom, use your freedom. Whatever freedom you have, use it for the Lord. And here we see, do it, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, knowing from the Lord you will receive of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. And here is your calling, brothers and sisters, to fear the Lord, to obey, and whatever you do, to do it for him. Can I please have the team come up for worship? We can have ideas about I, I, I won't say ideals about how, or maybe even a fantasy of, of how we could be serving the Lord or how what a great work for God is. But know that God will do a great work through all those who obey him and who trust him. And you may not be known on the global scale. You may not be sought after to be that guest speaker or or whatever would be, you would say, well, I've made it now. No, we can never come to a point in our Christian walk where we can be comfortable with how God's used us in the past. We can, it's, it's dangerous to come to that place. If, if that's where my testimony stops and said, yep, God brought me to Australia, and that's kind of it. There's been nothing that's really happened. There's been no real stepping out in faith since coming to Australia, and now we're here, and I can just hang my hat always on this one thing that God's done in my life. We need to have a present testimony of how we're serving the Lord, how we're trusting him. And I encourage you to seek him and how to... So be as those disciples who sought the Lord in prayer. So Lord, what, what would you have me do? Here I am, your servant. Speak, your servant hears. And let's listen to him. Lord, we thank you that you've given us life and an abundant life, an eternal life, and I pray that you have more for us than what we've already experienced. And may we not limit you by our own ideas, by our own aspirations. Lord, strip those away from us. Cause us to give them to you wholly so that you can work in and through us how you desire. Because your work, Lord, 
We need you to do it, and you alone know what your work consists of. I pray that we would be, as your bondservants, as your loving children, those who rely upon you and trust you and seek you, who, who are bound by your grace to do your work joyfully, thankfully, uh, recalling to mind with astonishment how you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, we thank you that you are an awesome God. You are amazing and beyond belief. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through Christ, through your word. And Lord, quicken us by your spirit. Please fill us so that we can walk in the way that fully pleases you and be those that are useful here, there, and everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.